Well, good morning. And happy Mother's Day to all you mothers and all you dads. Make sure the mums have got a really lazy day today because we're going to need it. We are going to need it. <laughs> right, so I'm just going to quickly pray. Lord, I want to thank you for today. Thank you that we, this is the day that we say thank you to you for that mothering heart that you give to your women. Lord, not all women are physical mothers, but we all have that that need, that desire to nurture and to bring up and to train and to teach. So, Lord, I want to thank you for that gift that you've given to womankind. And, Father, I ask that you would bless every single one here. And as we read your word, as we go through your word this morning, Lord, help us to learn from you. And, Lord, anything that is said that is not from you, just let it fall to the ground and be as nothing. But, Lord, anything that is from you, that is a seed that you want to plant, then let it go deep, Lord, and let it grow and become fruitful and wonderful in that person's life. Lord, we ask that in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, we're continuing our series in Hebrews, on Hebrews today, and I get to share on Hebrews chapter 6. It's a great privilege. I'm just going to share my thoughts and my observations. I've read it through, oh, hundreds and hundreds of times, but I have studied it for this section. Um, the passage I've been given is Hebrews, thir- Hebrews 6, 13 to 20, but I'm going to read from Hebrews 11 because my passage makes more sense if you read it from there. I'm going to read it in the New Living Translation. Most of what I read this morning will be in the New Living Translation. Okay. Verse 11 starts off, our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts in order to make certain that what you hope for will come true. I just want to pause there. What are you hoping for this morning? What are the promises that you believe God has given you? What's on your heart this morning? This passage is going to teach us how to appropriate that hope and those promises. So stick with it. Verse 12, then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent, Instead, you will follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. That is a word we don't really like, endurance, but this is coupled with faith. Verse 13, for example, there was God's promise to Abraham. Since there was no one greater to swear by, God took an oath in his own name saying, I will certainly bless you. And I will multiply your descendants beyond number. Then Abraham waited patiently and he received what God had promised. Now when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. And without any question, that oath is binding. God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. So God has given both his promise and his oath, and these two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain 
into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Just let it sink in. Lord, let it go deep into our souls and bring it closer, to, bring us closer to you and bring it closer to us as well in Jesus' name. That is an awesome bit of scripture. I absolutely love it, but it's really hard to understand sometimes. I'm going to start off by dispelling um, a misconception that in some Christian circles has got a grip, unfortunately. Um, that misconception is that Hebrews was written to several different groups of unbelievers, varying degrees of unbelief, as it were. I actually saw it posted on our, on our, web, uh, our uh, WhatsApp group a few weeks ago, and I thought, how could you even think that? So let's just start there. I want to examine this premise because I believe that it will affect, if you believe that, it's going to affect how you um, interpret and how you receive God's word in Hebrew. So we're going to dispel that to start with. I'm going to start by looking at all the other letters in the New Testament, beginning with Romans. Romans 1.7 says this, To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Paul writes to believers in Rome. 1 Corinthians 1.2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. 2 Corinthians is also written to the church at Corinth, who are believers. Galatians 1 and 2, to the church at Galatia. Believers again. Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ. Believers. Philippians, Colossians 1 and 2 Thessalonians are all written to churches in those places. Churches full of believers with issues. Anybody here not got any issues? 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus and Philemon are written to individual believers with issues. In 1 Peter, Peter writes to believers scattered abroad by persecution. This is a really important letter because we are going to face persecution. It's a, it's a letter we need to read. In 2 Peter, he writes to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. John, in 1, 2, and 3, John writes to believers. In 2 John, he writes to a specific believer, the elect believer, the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth. Specific thoughtful, loving, tender care of God's people. In 3 John, he writes to his beloved Gaius, a believer. Jude writes to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. In Revelation, John writes to seven churches, seven churches in Asia, all believers. All these letters were written by various apostles Two believers in Jesus Christ, believers with issues, churches with issues, godly people who needed encouragement, correction, and guidance. So it would be a complete aberration on Paul's part to suddenly dictate a 13-chapter letter to a bunch of unbelievers, heathen, if you will who don't want guidance or correction and couldn't care less about Jesus' sacrifice 
for them. The very title Hebrews tells us that Paul is taking these believers right back to basics. The first mention of the word Hebrews is it comes in Genesis 14 where Abram is called the Hebrew. Hebrews is definitely a hard book to understand and it's full of warnings and corrections and dread possibilities but it is written to believers. It's pointedly pointed at us. Paul would not have cast these pearls of wisdom. He wouldn't have sent that love. He wouldn't have prayed over this to swine. He wouldn't have done it. He would not have ended his letter by appealing to his dear brothers and sisters to pay attention to what I have written. He wouldn't have done that if they, were not believe, if they weren't believers. And to greet all your leaders and all the believers that are there, he wouldn't have written that if he was writing to unbelievers. So it begs the question, why would some Christians suggest such a thing? It's a premise that actually defies common sense. But actually, there's a lot of different reasons. For one, it's easier, isn't it? Let's be honest. It's far easier to believe that a brother or a sister in the Lord who appears to walk away wasn't a believer in the first place. It's much easier to believe that. Because let's face it, apart from the rejection that we feel, it's jolly hard work trying to catch up with these people, trying to keep in touch with them, trying to praying for them and hoping that that person will come back. It's hard work. And it's particularly painful when it's one of your own family. But isn't that why Jesus told us the parable of the prodigal son? Isn't that why that's there? For our encouragement. If you don't know it, I suggest you read it, but I'm assuming that you do, because I want you to notice that in that parable, the father doesn't change position. He doesn't go anywhere. He stays close to his home. And let me tell you, as a mother of several prodigals, the temptation to join them in their pigsty is huge. You want to be with them. But that's why Hebrews, that's exactly why Hebrews is so important. These things happen. Paul writes to tell us how to respond. And it's simple. It's really simple. You just keep letting the spirit of Jesus, the Christ in you, walk in you and through you. It's really easy. Don't stop doing the things that you know to be right and good and true just because your kids have stopped or your best friend doesn't want to anymore. Keep on keeping on. That's what Hebrews is telling us to do. The slightly more insidious reasons, the type of person who believes this is usually quite a controlling person. Um, they're also quite fearful. You know, their halo might slip and they don't want you to see it. They sometimes can be quite legalistic and hard. Elitist sometimes. But we have to have a deep-seated revelation within us that actually we can only walk well when we let the Holy Spirit take the reins. Until we get that, we'll do what Abraham did, which we're going to look at in a minute. And until that happens as well, this kind of silly talk will always be attractive. It has got an attraction because we can surround ourselves with lots of do's and don'ts, touch not, taste not, handle not, thinking that we're secure. 
And if we take on this mindset, this fearful, judgmental, elitist hat, then when we struggle with life in this present darkness, we are tempted to give up because, you know, the finger we've been pointing at everybody else suddenly becomes three fingers pointing right back at us. And that's why, that th why this passage, coming straight after a warning of the peril of not progressing, we are told how trustworthy God is. So, let's go back to verses 16 to 18 in Hebrews, chapter 6. I'm going to read it. It says, when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. And without any question, that oath is bound, binding. God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. So God has given both his oath and his promise, and these two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. This is the important bit. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. That hope is Jesus, as we know. But it was God the Father who made the original promise to Abram so that his ultimate promise, Jesus, could be fulfilled. Jesus then sent the Holy Spirit to live in us so that that promise could be seen and used and worked out in and through you and me. That is what these Hebrew believers needed to be reminded of. And to help them, Paul gives them Abraham as an example, the original Hebrew. I know you've all heard me say this before, but I'm going to say it again. To understand the, old, the New Testament, you need to know your Old Testament. You need to know your history. The Hebrew believers, they got stuck in time. They'd gone back to the law, to Old Testament ways, not realizing that the Old Testament is just a stepping stone to the ultimate revelation, Jesus Christ. And it's a warning to us too. To not repeat history's mistakes, you have to learn from them. And if all you ever do as a Christian is read your New Testament, I'm sorry to say you'll be forever falling over because you won't even know what the mistakes were. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then the Hebrew history is your history. Their trials are your trials. Their triumphs are your triumphs. Their tragedies are your tragedies. Now, the Christian readers, Christians reading this letter knew who Abraham was. And they knew God our Father by his names. It was part of their tradition. Elohim, Adonai, El Shaddai, Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Sikenu, Jehovah Mekadesh, Jehovah Nisi, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Rohi. Quana, I really like that one. That means jealous. That's, that's God's name. Did you know that? He is jealous. It's not that he is jealous. That's his name. That's his character. Who's he jealous for? Come on, this is interactive. Who is he jealous for? He's jealous for us. For us. And that's why he gives us these wonderful, wonderful scriptures. These names were milestones in the history of God's revelation of his character, who he is, to his people. And it's our revelation too. 
we are called as New Testament Christians to experience God as our peace, as our banner, as our righteousness, as our shepherd, as our healer, as our God who is seen there with us in every situation. Every situation of your life right here, right now, God who is with us. We know God the Father through Jesus Christ. Jesus is our life. They only had the revelation of the name, but not the power to live it. Only the Holy Spirit can give us the power to live this life. Old Testament believers had the stuff. They had the prosperity. They had the success, but not the substance, not the person of Jesus Christ. The gifts, if not, but not the giver, if you like. And that's why God gave the law. But that's another story, not for today. Suffice it to say, we are a hugely privileged people to know and be known by Almighty God. That is huge. But if you're just a New Testament Christian, you don't even know what you're aiming at. You don't even know what it is that God's got for you. So we're going to dig into the Old Testament a little bit. And I want, I want it to whet your appetite so you'll go off and read it for yourself. Paul is giving them Abraham as an example. With good cause. Because it's through his life, through Abram's life, that God worked out his promise. And the things with examples is, to be effective, they've got to be followed. There's no point in me giving you an example if you're just going to completely ignore it. So I want you to study Abraham's life when we've done this. Let's have a look at Genesis 17. I love Genesis. If you're not going to read any other book in the Old Testament, read Genesis. It's amazing. God reveals himself to Abram as El Shaddai. That is the one who keeps his promises, the overpowerer, the all-sufficient one, the one who is more than enough. At the time when God spoke to him, Abraham was 75 years old. Oh, no, he was 99 years old when God spoke that to him, sorry. Um, when God revealed himself, he renewed the promise that he first gave Abraham when he was 75. That's, I knew there was a 75 there somewhere. So, 75 years old, God speaks to Abraham. 99 years old, God speaks again. A bit of background for Abram, just so that you know where we're going. Abram's father, Terah, had just taken his remaining family out of the city of Ur of the Chaldees into the land of Canaan, and at the age of 205, he died in Haran. And straight after, in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, God speaks directly to Abram because he's now head of the family. He's the eldest son. God gave him this promise. It says this, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I appropriate that promise over and over and over again. I love it. It is a big opening statement on the part of God Almighty, don't you think? By biblical standards, Abraham wasn't even middle-aged. But this promise to him is huge. Sarai, his wife, was barren. 
So Abram did not have an heir. In the natural, his family name would die out. So God's saying that he would make a great nation of Abram and that all the families of the earth will be blessed through him is seismic on a global scale. But there was a condition, as there often is. He had to move away from his family to the land that God showed him. So let's have a look at how he responded. Verse 4. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him. So far, so good. And Lot went with him. Oh, strike one. Abram is hedging his bets. If Sarai doesn't miraculously um, conceive, he has backup in the form of, of his orphan nephew, Lot. And if you don't know Lot's story, it's pretty disastrous. Lot is the father of Moab and Ammon, and ultimately they become the enemies of Israel. It's a long story. Please, please read it. It's amazing. In Genesis 12, verse 7, the Lord appears to Abram a second time. To you and your descendants, I will give this land. So he's coupling the promise of the son with the land. He's repeating the promise of the son, and then he's getting specific. The Lord doesn't give up on Abram. He's taking him through a process, through a refining. Abram is going to go through some tough times, and a lot of it's going to be of his own making. For instance, the time that he said Sarah was his sister and not his wife. That was pretty stupid. He did it twice. Who knows why? But for the next three or four chapters, Abram loses faith. He goes into Egypt. He separates from Lot. He's, he rescues Lot from captivity. He fights off five kings. And finally, in chapter 14, he meets with Melchizedek, the priest of God Most High, who, to whom he gives his tithes and who then blesses him. I'd really love to talk about Melchizedek, but the next chapter is all about him, so I'm going to have to leave that for, for somebody else for next week. It's quite an adventure that Abraham, Abram has. And chapter 15, verse 1 of Genesis says, after these things. So it's 11 years of these things. But then God speaks to Abram again. And he says this. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. God doesn't turn up for 11 years. And then he says, Abram, I'm your shield. I'm your exceedingly great reward. I would love that, wouldn't you? That is amazing. Do you know what? All you need to do is pick up your Bible and read it, and it's right there. God tells Abram that he is his reward. Get it? God Almighty is his reward. That is a huge signpost to Jesus. In case you missed that, that is God pointing right at his son. Jesus is our reward. He is our inheritance. He is our savior. He is the ultimate reward to frail humanity. But Abram, being Abram, needs clarification because he hasn't quite got it yet. His faith level is not very high. This is what he responds. Oh, Lord God, what will you give me seeing I go childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? You have given me no offspring. One born in my house is my heir. Now, God has purged Abram of Lot and his family, but he's still looking to human resources, literally. He's still halting between faith in God and trust in the world. 
And when we come out of the world system into the kingdom of God's own son, we come with baggage. Our walk from then on with the spirit of Jesus within us is one of refining, of getting rid of baggage, of bad habits, of bad thought patterns. And it takes time to purge these things. It takes battles and tears and laying down of stuff and sometimes laying down of people too. Now, theologians will call that sanctification, and it can be very painful. But you know what? If you want to obtain the promises of God, it's a process that you have to go through. But God doesn't leave Abraham. Abram. He hones in on his promise. He gives Abram specifics. Genesis 15, verse 6. This one, like this one back there, he's not going to be your heir. But the one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. And to confirm this, God showed him the night sky and told him to count the stars in the heaven if he could. And then he said, and so shall your descendants be. Then Abram fellowships with the Lord all through the night, bringing sacrifices to him as God instructs. No law has been given yet. Moses hasn't yet gone to the mountain. He hasn't got the Ten Commandments. There is no law being given, no procedures. But Abram is just following God's instructions. And during that awesome night, God speaks to Abram and he tells him of the future of his descendants. He says, they will be strangers in the land that is not theirs and we will serve them and they will, aff and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterwards, they shall come out with great possessions. Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, this prophecy that God gives, I find hugely interesting. And I'm preaching, so you get to hear what I think. Not only is God confirming and promising Abram his own child, but a nation, a nation that he's just given a 400-year history to like that. Now, we know that God is referring to the book of Exodus, to Moses, but that last bit, that last sentence, is referring to a heathen nation, and that has implications for you and me, right here, right now. You see, the Amorites lived in the land that God had brought Abram to, and they immediately allied themselves with Abram. When he went to fight for Lot, they fought with him. They had affinity with Abram, and they honored him as God's man. Maybe, like Pharaoh, they could see God's supernatural blessing upon Abram's life. But either way, Abram was salt and light in a land of decay and sin. He was their example, too, just as we are example to everybody that we know. But look how gracious God is to them, to these heathen people. He's giving them time, four generations, to follow God or not. He's going to take his people out of the land for 400 years, dump them in Egypt, and let the Amorites have at it and see, see who comes out as a believer. The implication there is that it will need 400 years for the sin of the Amorites to be so bad that there's no hope for them. And then God can bring his people back. You'll find all of that in the book of Joshua. 
right now, as God is giving that prophecy, the Amorites are Abram's friends. They're his allies. And for me, this is, this is where it, it gets me. It says that we should not be hasty in dismissing anyone or any nation. Because right now, in Christianity, in church, there is a, a strong cry for the Lord to come back and to take us home. I've heard it again and again and again. We're in the end times, we're in the end times. And we are, but the end times began in the book of Acts, just to put that into perspective. But in here, I see a Lord who is far more long-suffering. He'd prefer to send his own people away for 400 years so the Amorites might turn from their wicked, wicked ways. And sadly, we do know in jo from Joshua 10.10 10, that uh, God gave Joshua an extra day. He made the sun stand still over Gibeon just so that Joshua could complete the task. And the whole nation of the Amorites was actually extinguished at that time. Again, I encourage you to read the book of Joshua. That too is amazing. Revelation 16 mirrors the book of Exodus. And we might very well be on our way to our very own exodus, which we call the rapture. The rapture actually isn't a word that you'll find in the Bible. It's a Latin word. And it's used to describe the events that Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians. It's where the saints who are alive at, at Jesus' second coming are caught up with him, carried away. But you know what? We've got a long, long way to go before that happens. And I believe that our God is a lot more patient with sinful humanity than Christians are, actually. Um, I, read, I read Psalm 75 recently, and it reminded me of just how far the body of Christ has to go before Jesus comes back. Psalm 75 is a precy of the book of Exodus. And in verse 38, it says this, Egypt was glad when they departed. For the fear of them had fallen upon them. And as we know, Egypt in the Old Testament is the same as the world in the New Testament. So when we read this, this exit the world with them. The, 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 when we exit the world, the world shall be glad. But not in a, we're glad those pesky Christians have gone because they're always whinging and whining and spoiling our fun. But in a, oh no, the fear of the Lord is on them. I'm not fearful anymore. That should make them glad. And I don't know about you, but has anybody seen the world fearful of the body of Christ recently? Of even one Christian? No. Then the end is not that near. It's not as near as we think it is. And we have work to do. We have souls to save. We have people to snatch from the burning. We have soldiers in our midst that we need to train and equip. Amen? So, Let's see how Abram responds to this latest dialogue with his creator. Chapter 16 of Genesis opens with Sarai mulling over the fact that she is barren. And in her wisdom, she fetches Hagar. Hagar is her Egyptian slave. And she presents her to Abram and says, The Lord has pre prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. Let's call it what it is, a temptation to believe God or not. Up to this point, 
Abram has been totally faithful to Sarai. He's 86 years old when God speaks to him. And he's just spoken to him powerfully, renewed and embellished promises that he's given 11 years previously. Even called him righteous because of his faith. So this is the perfect opportunity for Abram to stand with God. To rebuke his wife, just like Job did. And see the salvation of the Lord. What does he do? He sleeps with the Egyptian. And finally, finally, he has a son, Ishmael. What is he actually doing? Remember, Egypt in the Old Testament equals the world in the New Testament. Sarai, bless her cotton socks, has found a worldly solution for Abram. And Abram took it. This is a lack of faith on a global scale. An eternal scale, actually. Well, till the end of time, anyway. Ishmael will become the ancestor of all the Arab nations, and he'll have 12 sons. In Genesis 16, verse 12, God speaks about Ishmael to Hagar. This is what he says. This is God's summing up of Ishmael. This son of yours will be a wild man, as untamed as a donkey. He will raise his fist against everyone, and everyone will be against him. Yes, he will live in open hostility against all his relatives. If anybody's wondering why there is no peace in the Middle East, it's right there. Nothing's changed. Except now, it isn't one man, it's nations. Because God kept his word. He did bless Ishmael for Abram's sake. And this mistake, this sin of Abram's, this going back into the world to find a solution, had and has disastrous consequences for everyone on earth. So, if you were to take a snapshot of Abram's life and judge him on this bit of his life, you could be forgiven for thinking that he turned his back on God. You could even be forgiven for thinking that he's apostate. Because he's going to spend the next 13 years of his life celebrating, training and teaching his son of the world, this child who is going to cause such sorrow to the whole world, He's going to take care of him. Promises of God on the back burner. Thankfully, we are not the judge. Our creator is, and that's one job that we should safely leave in his hands. We serve a God who doesn't give up. And in Genesis chapter 17, God shows up again to a 99-year-old Abram, once more as El Shaddai. In verse 4, this is what he says. This is my covenant with you. I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. What's more, I'm going to change your name from Abram. Instead, you will be called Abraham, for you will be the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful. Your descendants will become many nations and kings will be among them. This is the everlasting covenant. I will always be your God and the God of your descendants after you. God's promise. And God again confirms his promise of the land of Canaan for Abraham. But then God said, your responsibility is to obey the terms of the covenant. What were the terms of the covenant? Verse 11, you must cut off the flesh of your foreskin as a sign of the covenant between me and you. You see, God gave his people in the Old Testament a physical reminder 
of their covenant with him. They could not, from this point on, pretend they didn't know him. That act of circumcision set them apart from all the surrounding cultures. And later on, Moses would link circumcision to the law. But when God gave that covenant to Abraham, it was a sign of obedience. It wasn't, le- it wasn't legalism. It's much like baptism is to us today. Baptism is a sign of obedience. It's not duress. You don't do it because somebody makes you do it. You do it because you want to tell the world who you are and where you're going. In Romans 2, verse 25 through to 28, Paul outlines the difference between the Old Testament circumcision and all that it had come to mean, all that it had come to mean to these Hebrew um, Jewish believers, as opposed to circumcision of the heart. I'll say that again, didn't say it right. He outlines the difference between Old Testament circumcision and all that it had come to mean in the New Testament times as opposed to the circumcision of the heart. The circumcision of the heart is something only the Holy Spirit can do. He sums it up in Romans 2.28 by saying, but he is a Jew or a Hebrew who is one inwardly and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter of the law, whose praise is from men, but not whose praise is not from men, but from God. There are a certain breed of men who will pat you on the back and congratulate you when you point fingers and walk away from struggling believers who look like they've walked away. God won't. God won't do that. He will ask you to pray. He will ask you to shed tears, to continue to bring them to his throne until they return. At 99 years old, Abraham was circumcised along with the whole of his household, including Ishmael. At 100 years old, Abraham's wife Sarah, Sarah, because her name's been changed too, had a son. And they called him Laughter. Because finally... Finally, they had obtained God's promise. Abraham's journey wasn't over. You can read the rest of it uh, in the book of Genesis. God hadn't finished with him. But our lesson today ends with Isaac. It took Abraham 25 years to realize God's promise. Some of us can't wait 25 minutes to get something from God. On his journey, he was refined, he fell away, he fought battles, he won some, he lost some. But God says of him in verse 15, going back to Hebrews 6, Abraham waited patiently and he received what God had promised. It's impossible for God to lie. He sees the beginning from the end and your journey is not over yet. No matter how near or far you feel from God this God today, because we've gone into the afternoon now, he knows you. He knows every bit of you. He called Abraham righteous because of his faith, just before he birthed an Ishmael. How many times does God do that with you? So don't give up. Press in. Dig deeper. Stand. And when, you're done all, when you've done all that you can do, still Stand. But you stand knowing that it's Jesus' life in you 
And Jesus' life can only be lived by his spirit in you. You can't do it. Don't think for one second that when you mess up, when you sin, that it's Jesus in you doing it. It isn't. It's you. We're going to sing. We're not going to sing, actually. We're going to listen to a song called Reckless Love. It's one of my favorites. And one of the lines is, there's no wall he won't kick down coming after you. That's who he is. This is who we serve. The one who gives himself away so that we can be saved is the God that we serve. And he will not let you down. He will not let you go. He will always be there for you. So as we're listening to this, if you feel you've got a need, if you, your journey's not over. Not one of you's dead yet, are you? Is there any dead people in here? No, you're all very much alive. You've still got a journey to, to fulfill, a journey to walk, walk through. You need the Holy Spirit's help. You need the help of your brothers and sisters around you. So as we are listening to this wonderful song, please turn to your brother or your sister and say, I've got a need. There's something in my life that is not working. There's, there's an issue that I've got. Pray for me. Because you know what? It's not about the leaders in this church. It's not about your, your pastors and your, and your elders and, and your teachers and apostles and prophets and all the rest of it. This is the body. This is where we minister to one another. The body ministers to the body. So if you have got a need this morning, turn to somebody and say, I need your help. Will you pray for me? They will, trust me, because they love you. So Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that everything that has been said, Lord, would be profitable. And Father, anything that isn't profitable, just throw it on the back burner. Throw it, throw it in the bin, Lord. We don't need to listen to that. But things that have impacted us, Lord, let them go deep. Let us learn from it. Let us use it. And let us dig deeper into your word so that we know where we're going, who we are searching for, who is going to help us in our battles. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.